welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. This is episode five, pro bono. You know you want to. Thanks for joining me. So this is a fortnightly podcast that focuses on appellate issues and appellate practice in Florida and both state and federal courts. I try to cover topics of interest to appellate geeks like us, and this week is something truly important, pro bono. Now, I'm sure the lawyers listening already do some form of pro bono. We know it's important. But this week, I want to pitch you on appellate pro bono through the Florida Bar's appellate practice section. There are lots of opportunities, and I promise it's easier than you think. My first guest is Joe Eagleton, an appellate lawyer at Brannock and Humphreys in Tampa. Joe chairs the pro bono committee of the appellate practice section, and we'll talk to you about how you can get involved. Then we'll hear from Thomasina Moore, the Director of Appeals for Florida's Guardian Ad Litem Program and the architect of the Defending Best Interest Program, one of the ways APS members are helping the children of Florida. Joe and Thomasina are dedicated professionals who are helping lawyers like us to make Florida a better place through pro bono legal services. My interview with Joe and Thomasina is coming up next. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. Yeah, thanks for being here. We wanted to talk a little bit about pro bono this week, but first I wanted to talk to you a little bit about you. Can you tell us a little bit about your appellate practice? Well, I think I'm less exciting than the pro bono discussion will be, but uh, sure, I'm an appellate lawyer at uh, Brannock & Humphreys, which is a, kind of an appellate boutique firm in Tampa. We have um, actually up to 11 lawyers now, um, and we... Uh, focus on appeals and trial support um, throughout Florida state and federal courts, uh, mostly commercial contexts where we represent plaintiffs and defendants and in the personal injury realm where we uh, focus on representing plaintiffs and PI cases. And so I'm more in the commercial world than the PI world. Um, And so I handle all kinds of civil appeals, um, family law appeals, uh, breach of contract cases, real estate disputes, pretty much uh, runs the gamut. And if I remember your background uh, correctly, pretty much your whole career has been some part of appellate practice, right? It has been, yeah. I uh, started as a staff attorney for, I guess, newly retired Florida Supreme Court Justice um, Barbara Perrienti um, and was there for a little while during some interesting um, cases and have been at Brannock and Humphreys since then, so I've been immersed in the appellate world. Well, that's a great place to be. Absolutely. So now, currently, you are chair of the pro bono committee of the Florida Bar's appellate practice section, right? That's right. I prefer czar, but we'll, we'll, we'll allow chair, yeah. <laughs> All right. And so what are your primary responsibilities as chair of that committee? Well, so basically the uh, pro bono committee kind of serves as a clearinghouse for um, pro bono requests uh, in the appellate courts. And so um, I'm sort of the primary point of contact for either litigants or um, trial attorneys or legal aid organizations or the courts. Um, and, and we can talk more about each of those different sort of buckets of where cases come from. Um, but I'm kind of the primary point of contact for folks who either are a client or a litigant or, or have a client or, or know a litigant um, who's needing some pro bono representation in an appeal, 
either someone who wants to take an appeal or someone who um, is the appellee and is trying to defend what the trial court did um, and who qualifies for pro bono representation, um, they can reach out to me, um, and then I sort of manage the appellate practice section's list of folks who are interested in pro bono opportunities and am kind of the, you know, I, I said czar jokingly, I'm really more of a middleman than anything. <laughs> I'm uh, sort of the go-between from the litigant or the legal aid organization or the court and the ultimate attorney who's doing all the real work of diving in and helping someone out on a pro bono basis. So what sorts of opportunities are there for pro bono that you are involved in in managing? So there's sort of the way I think about it is there's kind of three buckets of cases. So uh, one place that cases come from are actually the, the Florida state courts themselves. And so and this is probably the least frequent of where we get cases from, but some of the most interesting. And so um, the Florida Supreme Court, for example, if they have accepted jurisdiction in a case where uh, one of the parties is pro se, they um, so they allow pro se jurisdictional briefing, but the court does not allow a pro se party to brief a case on the merits, I think, under the sort of idea that if the case is important enough for the Florida Supreme Court to be deciding, it has lots of implications outside of just the particular litigants, and so they generally like to have um, an appellate advocate for that pro se person. And so That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it, it makes a, a great deal of sense, and it, and it works out well for our section and, and the pro bono committee because what the clerk will do if... Uh, that has happened, and, and it actually happened. You'd think it would almost never happen that there would be a case at the Florida Supreme Court, given their discretionary jurisdiction, that they would actually take something that, you know, as lawyers, we have a hard enough time getting our cases up right. there, right? But uh, that they would take something from a pro se litigant. And, you know, sometimes it happens um, in the criminal world. Maybe there's an issue that's been percolating out there, and um, a, def- a defendant was representing him or herself, and the DCAs want some clarity from the Florida Supreme Court, or, um, you know, often it, it might happen that a, a DCA writes an opinion when there was a pro se um, appellee, and so a lawyer, you know, petitions the court for jurisdiction, and so you have a pro se respondent. I would say that's the most common circumstance. But the clerk will actually, um, if the court has decided to take jurisdiction, in one of those cases, um, reach out to our committee and basically ask for a volunteer to take on that case. And so um, oftentimes there's actually oral argument in those cases. And so what a great way for a lawyer to get an oral argument up at the Florida Supreme Court. Do you find that Supreme Court cases are easier or harder to give away? Oh, much easier, much, yeah. much easier. That's yeah, what I would uh, think. Uh, everybody is interested in those, and and I usually try to be as hands off as possible on those cases, and, and leave the decision, uh, you know, up to the clerk to pick. I usually ask folks to send me their bio or a little write up about why they want the case, and and not be accused of any favoritism. <laughs> um, right. And let the clerk, you know, or the court. This is really counter to your czar role, though. Yeah, that's why I said it's just, it's really more imaginative that I'm the czar. I'm much more of the middleman. Um, so, so the cases from the court, um, 
you know, are really, really popular and, and a great way to get experience. Occasionally, one of the DCAs actually will reach out um, with the case. That's one of the things that I've been trying to do is sort of um, outreach to the DCAs to let them know that we exist as a resource. I know the first DCA has actually reached out within the last, I don't know, a couple of months for a case. Um, and so I think, you know, the DCAs see a lot more pro se litigants and they're a little more reluctant to um, intrude themselves into the the process there. But But occasionally they see a case or an issue where they think it would be beneficial for uh, briefing by a lawyer, and they'll reach out. Um, so that's sort of the first bucket of cases, things that come from the courts. The second bucket of cases um, are referrals from legal aid organizations around the state. So, you know, Dade Legal Aid or Bay Area Legal Services here in Hillsborough County, um, a case that one of their attorneys had been handling at the trial level, and there's going to be an appeal. Either they prevailed in the case and the other side's appealing, or they feel like there was just something really wrong that happened at the trial level in the case they were handling, and um, they want someone with some appellate chops to come in and handle an appeal of that issue. Um, and, and these cases are, are actually somewhat popular among our members, too, of course, because there was a lawyer representing someone at the trial level, um, you know, usually legal aid has done a pretty good job on behalf of the litigant. There's usually a pretty decent record uh, in the case. and You don't and, have as much mess to sort out yeah, at the yeah. appellate level. Right, exactly. And, um, and, you know, the legal aid organization can kind of serve as some institutional support and, you know, get the record, help get the record prepared and provide the transcripts and, and so on. Um, and so legal aid organizations is kind of the second bucket of cases. And and I would include, I guess, as an extension of that two sort of separate programs we have with um, specific groups. So um, the appellate practice section partners with the guardian ad litem program, the statewide uh, GAL, on um, a specific type of cases that the guardian ad litem handles. Um, and I won't go into too much detail about that. Right, because we're going to talk to uh, Thomasina more about that next. Absolutely. And Thomasina is great, and she will have much better things to say about it than I ever could. <laughs> um, and so th- those are some great cases, though, because it typically it's going to involve just a decision by a trial judge that the lawyer would be defending in the appeal. So it's it's an answer brief. And just like I was talking about with some institutional support from a legal aid organization, the, the Guardian Ad Litem program offers a lot of institutional support and, um, you know, checks a lot of the boxes, remo- removes some of the barriers that folks have for pro bono. I, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves either, but I always feel like I've, I've done one of those, and it, it feels like you're going downhill all the time, right? It's easy. Like, you're, you're the appellee, so you've got uh, the advantage of, of that, and then you've got all the support from the, from the guardian and litem office. So, yeah, those are, those are a lot of fun. Yeah, and Thomasina and her folks make things, make things easy. Like I said, it just it checks a lot of the boxes that, that I know appellate lawyers are looking for when they get involved in pro bono because, you know, sometimes it can be, and, and I guess this is a nice transition into the sort of third bucket of cases, it can be a little overwhelming sometimes to try to jump into a case 
on behalf of a brand new litigant at the appellate level, particularly if you know the litigant maybe was unrepresented at the trial court level. Um, and so, so that's kind of the third bucket of cases, which are usually pro se folks who reach out um, to the committee. Occasionally, you know, it may be that there's a trial lawyer who either had been handling the case pro bono or, um, you know, maybe at some point was getting paid and the client just kind of funds ran, ran dry, Mm -hmm. but maybe, you know, stuck around, um, for the case that might reach out. But, but often these are going to be folks in family law cases or foreclosure cases, um, you know, or some kind of small claims cases that were representing themselves in the trial and, you know, something didn't go particularly well and they're looking for an appellate remedy. Um, I think unsurprisingly, these can be some of the most difficult cases for us to to place. But, you know, we do have a lot of great members who are willing to step into to these cases that can sometimes be a bit of a mess. Um, and, and, you know, occasionally it'll be a pro se party who actually won something at the trial level it does happen <laughs> and um and maybe needs help defending or upholding that ruling on appeal and so um the, the last sort of category that i skipped over a bit um is just a, a sort of a separate partnership we have with the court of appeals for veterans claims and this is a somewhat new um source of cases for our committee um but that's a, actually a specialized court that sits up in Washington, D.C., and a, a former professor actually at, at Stetson's Law School is now a judge on that court. And um, they have their own pro bono program that's actually funded by Congress. I'm sure we would love to have some funding for pro bono here in the, the state. But... Um, they have a, a their own, they call it a consortium, where they actually help place lawyers with um, veterans who are appealing the denial of benefits from the Department of Veterans Affairs. And so um, we're now able to, there's a, there's a training that's required to be able to uh, participate in that consortium. And we've been able to offer that training for free to appellate practice section members and then to help uh, get them acquainted with this Veterans Courts Consortium and help place them into some cases where they can help veterans in that specific court as well. No, that's very interesting. I I saw the presentation on that that we had at the the retreat in Washington, D.C., and uh, Judge Mike Allen, formerly Professor Mike Allen, was there to talk about it, and that sounds like a great program uh, as well. Yeah, and that's another one that, uh, again, you know, provides a lot of institutional support for folks, and they have a brief bank, and they usually will pair you as a volunteer with one of their own lawyers and really help guide you through the issues. So it's a, a, a kind of an easy way to do some pro bono. So it sounds like with the the first two buckets, the the screening is sort of already done for you. Do you are you the one who has to screen the uh, the pro se requests that come in directly? Right, and uh, I have a, a vice chair, Eric Netcher. Shout out to Eric, who does a great job for the committee and spends a lot of time um, helping. And and so he and I primarily screen the requests. And so um, 
you know, we, we have to make sure that the litigant is actually financially eligible for pro bono services under the guidelines of the Florida Bar. So, you know, being a Florida Bar organization, the appellate practice section, um, you know, we're bound by the guidelines of the Florida Bar for what they determine the financial requirements are for folks, um, for services to count as pro bono. Um, and so we have a, a wonderful liaison with a legal aid organization who conducts the financial screenings for the committee so that we don't actually have to be, you know, in anybody's finances or anything oh, like that's, that. That's great. Yeah. And she knows, you know, what kind of questions to ask. And so basically if someone reaches out, um, uh, you know, we'll do sort of an initial intake, just kind of make sure, you know, yes, there is a written order that was entered, you know, that's actually not from two years ago or something like that. Um, and then have the financial screening, um, done by the, the liaison that we have with legal aid. And then we don't do any screening on the merits of the actual case. So we don't get involved in determining whether the you know issue is likely to succeed or whether the case has any you know merit. We, we leave all the substantive decisions up to individual lawyers to make on their own accord and decide whether they want to get involved. We're just sort of making sure... And that's why I said it's sort of like a clearinghouse. You know, we're just making sure that there actually, you know, is something appealable um, and, you know, that the person meets the bar's financial requirements. And then, and then we let lawyers make their own determination about whether it's something they can help with. So a big part of your job is, as, as the clearinghouse is getting the word out, getting the opportunities out uh, to the members. How, how do you do that? Well... By talking to you, hopefully it's going to help. But, um, <laughs> well, I hope this does help. That's part of the part of the point, right? Yeah. So in any way that we can, right? Um, so we have a, a listserv that that the pro bono committee maintains, and it's really as simple as if you're a member of the appellate practice section and you email me and say, "Hey, I want to know about these opportunities," I will add you to the pro bono listserv and it's a sort of I tell people you know no commitment required it's very easy to delete my emails you never know you know a year from now there might be a case that um, piques your interest um, and so you know just really word of mouth is the primary way um, I think our program is out there on the internet certainly I have gotten calls from folks who have found us out there on the internet so I know that it's searchable. The American Bar Association actually has a, a very cool um, manual that they put out, an update every couple of years that talks about um, different appeals pro bono programs throughout the country. And Florida, actually, we have one of the most robust among them, but um, our information is available through the ABA, so sometimes folks might find us there. Um, but in terms of lawyers getting involved really again all you need to do is get on the listserv and that's as simple as reaching out to eric or to myself or mentioning to somebody that you want to know about pro bono opportunities <laughs> so i i am on that list and i get your emails and i will tell you that uh, i think the emails are great i mean the emails are very descriptive i'm looking at one i brought one that came in yesterday as a description of you know two cases these are guardian ad litem cases but uh right down to, you know, where the appeal is from, how many pages is the record, how many pages was the initial brief, 
who was the lawyer on the other side and a, and a, and a thumbnail sketch on what the issue is. I mean, what, what more information could you need to, to make a preliminary determination, hey, this is something I'm interested in or not? So I, I, kudos uh, to you guys on the, on the email communication, I think, is, is great. Well, thanks. Yeah, and, and, and Thomasina and the Guardian Ad Litem program help us a lot with screening those cases. But we try to make it as easy as possible for folks to really get a quick snapshot of, you know, is this something I might be interested in? What is this case about? Where is the appeal? How involved is this going to be? Um, I mean, I, you know, the trying to break down as many barriers to people um, taking on a pro bono case as possible. Because I think, you know, a, a lot of us would love to do more pro bono work. You know, I think it, it's very important, you know, helping people is one of the main reasons a lot of us became lawyers to begin with. And, you know, we just don't always have the time to devote to it. And so to the extent that we can help make it easy on folks, be a resource for folks, let them know, here's your opportunities, here's what we w- would be involved, here's what the case is about, and just, you know, help people find something that would be interesting to them if they're going to use their talent and their time to generate to, to, to donate to a pro bono cause that, you know, they know what they're getting into on the front end. That was one of the reasons I wanted to do this, because I think sometimes when you think about pro bono and especially pro bono when it comes to appeals, it can be sort of intimidating to think, boy, I, I don't know if I want to take on something like that, Right. Because it can be, depending on where you get involved, it can be a procedural mess and there can be very little support. But uh, there are so many opportunities that, that we have that you coordinate through this program that make it easy. It's, it's easier than you think, I guess, is the way I should say it. And having, having done a couple, it's, um, I was very impressed at how, uh, yes, you know, do you have to spend a few hours writing a brief? Yes, but a lot of the rest of it is the rest of the hassle is taken away and it makes it uh, much easier to do, much less of a, of a burden, and you can feel good about having done something, you know, something great uh, when you're done. Yeah, and I think, you know, as an appellate lawyer, if you told me I just got to spend a few hours writing a brief, that sounds great. Right. You know, it's, <laughs> that can be the most fun part of our practice. And so that's really what we're, what we're going for, and I think, you know, the Guardian Ad Litem program presents one of the best chances, you know, and entry points for folks to get involved. Because I think that a lot of times when when lawyers think about pro bono, they might not think about appeals. And so it's, you know, it's really a great opportunity for younger lawyers who might not have a chance to run first chair with something or folks who are looking for maybe board certification and need an extra brief or two um, or, you know, maybe want to get an oral argument in a case or, um, you know, recertification, um, you know, there, there's lots of other advantages to taking on a pro bono appellate matter. Definitely. So just to summarize, if people who are listening want to get involved, step one is they should join the appellate practice section, right, which is, is easy enough to do, and it's and uh, then they should get in touch with you. And do you want to give out your email address? I'll, I'll put it in the show notes for anybody that needs it, but if you want to give it out here too. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And like I said, it's as simple as just sending me an email that says, Hey, can you add me to the pro bono listserv? I'll put your, you know, email address on there and you'll start getting the notices of these opportunities about the various, um, cases that, you know, we've been talking about now. And, 
you don't have to respond to them. You can just kind of let it digest a little bit for a while, kind of get a sense of what the opportunities are. And then, you know, when, when you have some time or when the right moment comes along, then, you know, just, just reach out about it. And so my email address is J Eagleton, E A G L E T O N at B H appeals.com. Thanks, Joe. Now, before we go, I wanted to ask you a couple of my lightning round questions. Now, so far, this hasn't been very effective because all of my guests have have had very non-controversial opinions. But I'll try to be contrarian. <laughs> we, we, we might be there anyway, but but let's just see. Um, Oxford comma, yes or no? Absolutely, yes. Okay, of course. Uh, after a sentence, one space or two? Ooh. I'm a two-spacer in, in brief writing. I will occasionally use one in an email. That's mostly default from my phone and it being easier right. to use one space <laughs> there, but I'm a two-spacer. Okay. Westlaw or Lexus? Westlaw. Any particular reason? or? Um, well, I mean, first of all, that's what my firm uses. That's always so a good I'm, reason. I'm defaulted to that. But I will say I, I would tended to use Westlaw more even when I was at the court and we had access to both, and and I'm not sure why. I think maybe it was just that's what I first started using. Yeah, a lot of times that's the uh, that's the answer. iPhone or Android? I'm an Apple guy, so I've got yeah. an iPhone. Yeah, we we've had uh, we've had a little bit of mixed opinion on this, and then we had Matt Canigliaro who said he uses a BlackBerry. Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, he is special in a lot he of ways. So, yeah. <laughs> and what about for pleasure reading, uh, Kindle or paper? Well, I've transitioned to a Kindle. Actually, I, I have an iPad Mini that functions very much like a Kindle, and right. so I tend to the Kindle app on the, yeah, exactly mm-hmm. the Kindle app, uh, which is nice because then I can use it on my phone and things like that too. But um, I, there is something about holding a book that is nice. So that's one of those conveniences that's maybe too convenient now. Right. It's nothing, you know, if you borrow a book from somebody or you get your hands on a on a nice paperback copy of something you can really mark up. I do like that. I do too. Yeah. Joe, thanks so much for your time. I'm glad we had a chance to talk about all these appellate opportunities and I hope that we can help find you some more help uh, through this podcast. Uh, I know I'm going to grab another case soon. I hope other people will do that and uh, really appreciate your time. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Dwayne. It's been fun. Thomasina Moore, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dwayne. Thanks for having me here. So you are the Director of Appeals for Florida's statewide Guardian Ad Litem office in Tallahassee. Um, how long have you been in that position? I've been Director of Appeals since August of 2017, but I've worked for the Guardian Ad Litem for several years before that. Okay. And what did you do before you were Director of Appeals? I always did some appeals. I've done them my entire career, but I worked doing some training for the program, and I also did work in administrative services, which was contract review, HR, and uh, supporting finance with the contracting regulations, that type of thing. And what was your legal background before you started with the Guardian Ad Litem's office? I have a pure civil litigation background before that. When I first graduated, I worked at Anderson, Monstros, and Petros in Miami, and I worked on the tobacco litigation. I was actually involved in 
the two class action lawsuits as well as the state of Florida case and worked after that for Rumberger Kirk in products liability and went to the second district where I did uh, some time and the central office there. Um, after I left the second district, I went to work for a um, law, law firm where I worked as an associate and ended up running the law firm's regional litigation office. So I, I have a pure civil litigation background. And as I said, during that entire time, I also handled appeals, but never quite as many as I wanted to because I've always loved doing them. I participated in court in law school and even in college before that. And always enjoyed it. So I was looking for a position where I could do more appellate work and was able to do volunteer work for the GAL handling appeals. Before I came to work here, I was a volunteer. And then, as I said, when I came to work for the GAL, I had other jobs, but throughout that, or other positions, but throughout that entire time, I also did appellate work for them. And so now as uh, the director, what are your responsibilities? I have a caseload. I handle some cases. Most of the time, they are ones that are more policy issues and will handle rules cases in front of the Supreme Court or other files that involve new or expanding areas of law. I also supervise the appellate staff. We have three full-time attorneys, two uh, paralegals at this time, and I will help them with both their, you know, formulating their ideas and then editing and reviewing their briefs. And in addition to that, I also run the Defending Best Interest Pro Bono Project. So now I knew early on when I started this podcast that I wanted to talk about pro bono at some point and specifically about the, the amazing program that the Guardian Ad Litem office has that, that makes pro bono easy. Because, you know, I will admit that my pro bono work up until recently was usually not appellate related. Um, not that I don't love doing appeals, right? We We all do. But it felt like a big commitment to take on a pro bono appeal. Uh, but I did take on a, a guardian item program appeal, and I was frankly amazed at just how easy that you all make this process. And And I'm a believer, and I know that, that that case won't be my last. So we've talked to Joe Eagleton about finding pro bono opportunities and you know how to locate those things, and we know what his role is in the process. But I want to talk to you in some more detail about specifically how the Defending Best Interests uh, project works. Well, first, thanks for letting me know it, it is so easy. We have worked hard to try to develop it in a manner that makes it as easy as possible for our volunteers. Because I, I believe there are so many attorneys out there like I am that don't have the ability to do appeals full time. I, I do now, but didn't throughout my career, but want to get more involved in them. And I really wanted to find a way to make it um, so that they could take a case and just feel comfortable handling it. So what I did first, when I first developed the Defending Best Interest Project, my boss, Alan Abramowitz, the Guardian Ad Litem Executive Director, came to me and he said, I just want a pro bono project. However you want to develop it, you do that. Let's just do a project. I think that's something that would be great. And he, of course, was right. He's got a, a knack for these things. But I went and I looked at the ABA study and what they had 
found when they surveyed attorneys across the country. And really, it's it's very basic things where attorneys want to do volunteer work and they want to do pro bono work, but it's hard for them to do it based on time. We all have so many time constraints based on a concern about the knowledge of the area of the law, a concern about support and somebody that can give them both the technical and the substantive support for it. So I developed the project so that we take our cases where we are preparing answer briefs on behalf of the child or children in the dependency case and arguing for the court's order. And in the determining whether a case should have a termination of parental rights order entered, the judge makes a determination that that is in the child's best interest. And that's where the title comes from, defending best interest, because you're defending that court judgment. I then took the cases and I broke them down into three categories. Uh, The first level of case are cases where you have short records, not as complicated issues on appeal. You're not going to have the complicated expert uh, witness battle. You're not going to have a complex argument on a new area of law or constitutionality or anything along those lines. And then took those cases and made it so that we could offer those as cases for the attorneys volunteering for the Defending Best Interest Project. And we have the process, and Joe has helped us really um, fine-tune this, and I'm very appreciative of his help with it, where we create what we call a text box, which has the issues on appeal as defined by the appellant. We just take their issues and, and put them in there. We will include who the appellate uh, opposing counsel is so that people can see right away if it's a case where they don't want to um, be able to take it because of some personal conflict or it might even be their own firm. We'll put in there the length of the record, the length of the transcript. Uh, we even have the length of the brief and how many argue, how many pages is argument as opposed to facts so that people can get a real sense of what they're biting off when they look at a brief. We don't send the initial brief until a case is taken due to confidentiality concerns, but we give them as much as we think that we can so they understand that. We've also developed what we called our Defending Best Interest Practice Guide. It's about 35 pages and it hits most of the most commonly seen arguments you will have on appeal. What the grounds that are most commonly argued for TPR what the standard is for the manifest best interest portion, what the standard is for the least restrictive means portion. It also gives you some basic understanding of certain arguments on appeal, which you see most often, which would be competent substantial evidence arguments, things along those lines, so that the volunteers have a resource that they can go to that will give them what they need, at least to get started, if not everything they need, because we did try to make it comprehensive. There's a lot of case sites, everything in there, and additional resources to go to. And I just want to say about that, the the emails that go out are are wonderful. The way you put all that information into these boxes and they go into an email that that Joe sends out, it really gives anybody who is interested uh, a great look at what the case is like, what the length is, what the record is like, what the issues are. That's one of my favorite things about the about the program is how easy it makes for you to, you know, shop for a case that 
is what you're interested in, you know, and, and maybe you take an easy one to start and you take a more complicated one the next time or whatever, but you, you really go into it knowing what you're getting into. And, and I like that a lot about the process. Thank you. And, and it's good to be able to see what you're getting into. And it's also good for you to be able to see what, where you're taking a case. I have certain attorneys that I've volunteered that had the goal of being able to say that they have practiced in front of every DCA in the state of Florida. So they have systematically taken cases in different district courts so that they now are able to tell their clients, I, I have appeared everywhere. And that's one of the benefits. We try to really make it the project so that it's helpful to the attorney and, and betters their practice, as well as helpful to the guardian ad litem program and tremendous for the children they represent. But even after we give you the brief and give you the information, we give you technical support, which I think is really a very high level. And kudos to my staff for everything they do to be able to say that and that we have developed a format brief that has a standard of review that we have tailored to whatever district court you're in. I went to a seminar once, and it was the fifth DCA, practicing before the fifth DCA, which the appellate practice section put on. And one of the clerks there said the first thing they do is look and see if in your standard of review, you're citing fifth DCA cases. So we tailor our briefs to the DCA and send you that. And then when you're done your brief, we will give it a substantive review to make sure there haven't been changes in case law or anything along those lines. But then we also give it a technical review, which I, I don't think we miss anything, um, candidly. Um, and again, I can say that because my staff is so terrific. But <laughs> we go through and every site is checked in Westlaw and, and literally go into Westlaw and double check it. Every site is Blue Book checked. We go through and do all of the short sites, make sure that you have the original first site and then second site. We give it a good grammatical review and then uh, proofreading as well. Once that is done, we also will generate the tables for you and including both the general uh, generating the tables of content and uh, tables of authority. I know um, I had one volunteer that said her assistant did a happy dance when she found out she didn't have to generate those tables. Because those can be intimidating. <laughs> so um, we really try to make it the full service A to Z. And, and even along the way, while you're writing, I've had many attorneys that have called me, called one of my staff, even reached out to the trial a team and talk to them about the arguments on appeal so that we make sure that they have everything they need. Um, and we will give you what you need um, for support along the way, in addition to just talking to you about the case. When we have notices of appearance that need to be filed, we will draft and file that for you. That gives you the access to the record, but we send you the record in PDF format, so you have it at your convenience right away. We will file whatever motions you need filed and help you with uh, any um, response to orders, anything that comes up along the way as you're doing the brief, we'll also give you the support for that. So I think we're really a very full service team and um, very lucky to have such a great staff to do all of that for me. Definitely. Uh, This is part of what I was talking about is when, when I get that package with all the materials and I get the shell of a brief that has all of that 
standard of review and, and essentially everything prepared for me. It's all that's left to do is to write the substantive portions of the brief. And, and really, for most appellate lawyers, that's the part we like getting into the getting into the record, especially if it's not, you know, a million page record, uh, formulating arguments, uh, writing the arguments, sort of wordsmithing them and uh, and, and doing the, the creative part of the drafting. And that's kind of all that's left. And then we even have the, you know, the assurances that, that you guys are going through to make sure that there are no mistakes and that everybody is, you know, that we're putting out the best quality work product. So I think it's, um, it's a wonderful system. And I agree, you do have an excellent staff to, uh, to pull that off because that's none of that is a, a small task. No, they're, they're terrific. Um, and uh, I can't imagine trying to get through this this process without having their support. So uh, it's terrific. And, and as I said, I'm glad to hear that it is as easy as can be for you. I agree. Writing the substantive piece is really the fun part. And with these briefs, I think people have also been surprised at just how substantive some of the issues can be, how often we get constitutional challenges in our briefs, for instance. And um, people really like that. It's something that you may not get day in and day out as an attorney. So it's nice to have those kind of to geek out for a moment, fun things to to, um, argue and draft. Now, what about oral argument? Uh, Is there oral argument in any of these uh, guardian ad litem cases? There are some, not many, um, but that's true of all cases now. There's not as many oral arguments as there used to be, but we absolutely allow the attorneys that do the briefs to both determine if they want to request oral argument and also to um, argue it if if that comes to that. Um, Some of the attorneys find it helpful if they're, for instance, ones that are trying to get the briefs and oral arguments that they need to apply for certification to be able to at least say, I asked for oral argument and it was turned down. But it's a wide open field for that if there is somebody that wants OA and um, wants to file that request for it, we will support the attorney in doing that. So now we know this program has been pretty successful because from what I hear, you have just reached a big milestone. We did. Uh, We yesterday assigned out our 200th case to be handled by a volunteer, and that is in under two years. So we are averaging just about 10 briefs a month that are being handled by a pro bono attorney. We have over 4,000 hours worth of time that's been donated by attorneys across the state, very generous with their time. And about 75% of that have been people who are members of the appellate practice section, a few of who I actually were a- was able to get to join the appellate practice section because they were doing so many briefs for me and were, were loving it so much. So whether they started that way or ended that way, 75% of them are appellate practice section members. It's an amazing team effort from the APS. No, that is great. And, and congratulations to you on, on you know, being the, the force behind uh, this program and getting to the point where you filed 200 pro bono briefs already. I mean, that's just, uh, that's great. That's a really nice accomplishment. And thank you. And, and I should say thanks as well to Alan Abramowitz, our executive director, has been supportive every step of the way. And has given me all of the resources I need to be able to make this 
vision that he and I developed into reality. So um, I'm just so, so gratified to be a part of it and to be able to watch how the project has grown and blossomed. It's, it's really a wonderful thing for Florida's children. Yes, I am. I'm definitely a believer. This is really the way pro bono should work. Uh, I'm glad that the guardian ad litem office has the, you know, the funds and the desire to manage a program like this. It's definitely great for the children of Florida. It is. And we have helped so many along the way, um, whether it's through families that have had reunification and there are some, the number, the dozens of adoptions that have resulted from this work, people just helping children get permanent homes. And it's, it's really the best work I've ever done. It it really is. And it is a liver of love for me to work on this project and to be able to do it in conjunction with um, just to do pro bono in conjunction with appeals is can't tell you how, how satisfying that is. It, it, I think anybody who would take a case and handle one would feel the same way. I get any number of people who have done a brief and who are giving me feedback and, you know, they uniformly tell me that it has been some of the um, most rewarding work they have done in their career. So now I would guess that a lot of the lawyers that are listening to the podcast may already be some of your volunteers in the program, but but there are probably some who are not. So we're going to hope that uh, this will encourage anybody who is on the fence uh, to to give it a try. Is I'm assuming that the the best way for them to get involved in this is through the appellate practice section and through the list that Joe Eagleton curates. Yes, that is as I said. Three quarters of our our volunteers come through the list that Joe curates. And every one of those cases that have gone out, it's because Joe has put in the work and um, the appellate practice has uh, stepped up to it. So um, that is the best way for an APS member to become involved is to get on that list, serve and look for cases. So now, Thomasina, I have a habit of the guests on the podcast, I have sort of a lightning round of questions that I like to ask them to see if I can stir up any interesting answers or any controversies. Are you up for the lightning round questions? I don't have a button, but I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so far, my, my contentious questions haven't been very contentious, so we'll see. Okay. Um, so Oxford comma, yes or no? Yes. Okay. Uh, after a sentence, one space or two? Two, and I have very strong opinions about that in that every seminar I go to, the trend is always to say that with e-readers, we need more white space on a page. So although I was always a two-space person, I think that the argument that you need more white space on a page even supports that even more in this new era of technology. So very strongly, too. Yeah, I agree with that. What about Lexus or Westlaw? Oh, I don't want to get in trouble. Um, Westlaw. <laughs> I I um, had Westlaw. Jack, our um, umbrella uh, agency, switched to Lexus a couple of years ago, and it's just not working as well, I'll be honest. It has a couple of features that are really nice. They They use colors to show terms. That's good. But overall, definitely Westlaw. 
And what about iPhone or Android? I've only ever used iPhone, so iPhone. Okay. And for when you're reading for pleasure, uh, assuming that, you know, to the extent any of us have time for that, paperback or Kindle? Um, Paper. There is nothing like the feel of paper in the hand. I, I love books. I travel as much as I can. And I always have a paperback in my backpack on the plane. And there isn't a holiday, you know, anniversary, other major event that goes by that my husband doesn't get me a book. So, yeah, uh, I find that most most writers are readers, too. Right. Don't you think? Yeah, I think so, too. Um, It's 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 um, how you develop your craft in a way. And maybe it's just um, the the joy of being a reader first is what leads you to want to write. Well, Thomasina, thank you so much for your time. I I I hope that uh, we will get you some more volunteers for the Defending Best Interest program this way. And I'm certainly happy to help promote it any way that I can uh, on the podcast and, and otherwise. So, but, but thank you very much. And I really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Can I tell you one thing as an aside before we sure. hang up? The day that I came in two years ago, um, I was nervous. Unfortunately, Tom was there, Tom Young, who I've known for a very long time, which helped. But I was really nervous. But you, the section makes everybody so welcome and are so, you know, so, you know, inclusive that that went away quickly. You, you, you are a great group of people and I'm very um, glad to be able to be a member of the section. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I remember that day <laughs> that you yeah. came in to, to pitch this idea and, and who knew then that it would become, uh, you know, it certainly felt like a great idea and it be, has become such a success. And, you know, we can all, uh, you know, sort of pat ourselves on the back for that and say, uh, glad to be a part of it. Amen. All right. Well, thanks, Dwayne. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Thomasina. Thanks for your time. And hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast sometime. All right. You take care. My thanks to Joe Eagleton and Thomasina Moore for being my guests this week on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you need the help of an appellate lawyer, I'd be happy to try and help. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes, which are available in your podcast player. Now, podcasters usually don't talk about the number of listeners, but I will say this. So far, there's a lot more of you listening than I expected. I really appreciate all of you taking your time to listen. I hope that you're getting something useful and maybe a little bit of entertainment too. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions. Just send me an email. Send me a Twitter DM. Let me know that you're out there. Let me know that you're listening. I'd really appreciate it. As always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.